Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we'll continue our series on negative emissions technologies. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about afforestation. There is one predictable response that you will always tend to get whenever you mention sucking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere as a solution to climate change. I think it's well-intentioned as a response, but when you've seen it said a thousand times and responded to it many different times, it starts to feel like it's missing the point. The response you'll get is, nature has already invented a machine that does that, it's called a tree. We are of course all aware of the devastating impact that industrial civilization has had on the natural landscape. A 2015 study published in Nature, for example, suggested that as many as half of all existing trees have been cut down by humans since civilization began. Now we learn as schoolchildren that trees take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and produce oxygen, and we have this sense that they are the life support system of the planet. And hence the destruction of forests, I think, is just embodied in us as something that is a a terrible waste and a terrible tragedy and a destruction of the life support system of the planet. In actuality, it is a lot more complicated than that. Much of the net breathable oxygen that's in the atmosphere comes from marine algae. On land, plants and trees do produce oxygen, but then they tend to decay on land as well, and that oxygen is consumed as they decay by these microbes and other small organisms, as well as in forest fires. Whereas the the marine algae, who decay in the ocean, um, there's less of that exchange going on. So, you know, it's interesting that actually if you follow the flow of net breathable oxygen, most of it doesn't come from trees. But that's not really that important. Now, I'm not saying here that planting trees is not a good idea, and I'm certainly not here to say that we don't need to take urgent action to slow the irrepressible and ongoing tide of deforestation. Perhaps that should be the first thing we do before we think about planting brand new forests. But I will say that quite often, planting trees can be proposed as something of a panacea for restoring the natural environment that we know we've destroyed and addressing climate change. And it's really not as simple as that. And just because it's a natural solution, you have to be concerned that you will fall into some of the same logical traps that you can fall into relying on technologies as well. Because this is a series on negative emissions, we're primarily going to talk about the efficacy of planting trees and in the next episode on so-called nature-based solutions as a means of delivering negative emissions and reducing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. But bear in mind as we do this that, of course, this is a much wider topic than that, and that many of these nature-based solutions and afforestation and so on have many different co-benefits to them, both for climate change adaptation as well as mitigation. In many cases, pursuing these activities just for those benefits, which can involve restoring aspects of the natural environment and providing wider benefits for ecosystems and so on, is going to be worth it on its own, Or indeed, quite often, these benefits may be better than the carbon accountancy aspect of the actions that we're taking. So it is a very narrow way of assessing and comparing different solutions just to look at that carbon accountancy. Luckily for us, as we've probably discussed before in this negative emissions technologies episode, if we are going to have negative emissions technologies taking off at the extent that they are envisioned in so many different climate change scenarios now, and that's a big if we are likely to be using some of each of these different technologies to some extent or another. So there'll be plenty of room for ecosystem restoration under any particular circumstance, even if the carbon accountancy of it is not as good as other technologies, although in many cases it will be. Nevertheless, if we are going to hold up planting trees and just assess it just through this one narrow dimension of providing negative emissions, 
then we need to realise that it's subject to many of the same constraints and problems that apply to other negative emissions technologies. Scholars like Jane Flegel have pointed to a sort of naturalness fallacy which can come into our thinking at times like this. And this is essentially just assuming that the solution which seems to be more natural is always better than the solution which seems to be artificial. You might aesthetically prefer the utopia where we return much of the world to forests again, as opposed to the world where we develop technologies that clean up our historical mess. That doesn't mean that it will be any easier to get there, or that there aren't a lot of difficulties that come in along the way. There's an idea that it's always going to be better to plant forests to pursue negative emissions than doing so with, say, direct air capture machines, because it feels like a more natural solution, and also, I think, because further technological interventions in nature seem doomed to fail. I mean, look at what we've done so far. But there are a number of places that you can pick at this argument. For a start, we've talked about Hornigold's law in these episodes. You know, this is the idea that your activities to remove carbon have to be on a similar scale to the activities that are putting carbon into the atmosphere for them to have a serious impact. It's pretty obvious, but it's certainly true. And this applies to planting trees as well. For example, even the week I wrote this, Shell's recent 1.5 degree Celsius climate scenario came out. Now, it may surprise some of you to learn that, in fact, the fossil fuel companies and their analysis arms and their research arms are very active in this space. If you go to climate change conferences, you will see them presenting their scenarios sometimes alongside scientists. Uh, Scientists from these companies produce scenarios which are energy type scenarios, they use things like their own integrated assessment models, and they will talk about the role for fossil fuels in the next 10-20 years, and they'll talk about the role for renewables and other technologies globally, and sort of map out these uh, prospective pathways for climate change over the next 70-80 years. And it's always interesting to look at these scenarios that they produce, because quite often they will produce climate change scenarios that are um, often criticised for leaning too heavily on negative emissions, for example. But actually, Glenn Peters, who we refer to a lot here, uh, noticed that if you look at some of the climate change scenarios that have come out with uh, by Shell and by other uh, fossil fuel companies who do this sort of modelling, they use a lot of negative emissions, yes, but so do the ones that are used by the IPCC, and so do the ones that are used by uh, mainstream politicians and so on to project the levels of emissions reductions that they'll need in the next few years. So either both of these are massively overestimating the potential for negative emissions technologies and the likelihood that these technologies will arise, or they are both accurate... You can probably tell based on my general disposition throughout this series which of those I think is true. But, you know, it's interesting to look at this because within these scenarios, sometimes you see the justification for the fossil fuel companies, particularly now here in 2020, to claim that, you know, the next 10 years they can still focus on uh, maximising their output of fossil fuels because that's early on in the transition and we haven't started to move away from them yet. And they are providing a bridge in the short term. Uh, which we will cross as soon as new technologies have been developed. And of course, it gets into that whole uh, Duncan McLaren argument about the uh, delays to climate change action that the promise of new technology can uh, deliver to us. But the week I wrote this, Shell's recent 1.5 degrees Celsius climate scenario came out, a scenario they describe as their most ambitious ever. 
And that relies on planting new forests the size of Brazil, globally, to keep to below that temperature threshold. To give you a sense of scale of this in numbers that we've used before, in their scenario, by 2060, forest planting would remove 12 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year. That's about a third of our present day emissions. And would ultimately cover 700 million hectares of land. This competes for land that humans may also want to use for agriculture or bioenergy crops, and for water too. So you have to look at this from the perspective of how we've talked about other negative emissions. Just because we've replaced our fantasy of fleets of carbon scrubbing machines with fleets of trees, it doesn't necessarily mean that the same dynamics aren't in play. We talked about one of the concerns with negative emissions being the idea of a moral hazard. If people believe that technology can come along that will fix or erase the climate change problem, it can justify inaction or slow action today. Shell can say that actually there'll still be plenty of oil being used and produced in 2060 and we will have a carbon neutral world. What they won't tell you, of course, is that at that stage where all of that oil is being produced, we're also going to be planting forests the size of Brazil to soak up the carbon from using that oil. If they told you that part of it and and headline that front and centre rather than burying it in details of the model, then you might question whether um, this was actually the most rational pathway to getting to net zero. This belief in techno-fixes and techno-solutionism, it can distract from more difficult political choices that we may have to make, and questions that we have to ask about how we use energy, how society is structured and so on, by promising that we can keep everything else the same, providing we simply do this extra thing too. It's this tendency of looking for solutions that uh, rely on extra things to be bolted on, rather than, shock horror, removing some of the things that we can no longer have, like, for example, continued profitable fossil fuel companies. But imagining that we can plant forests the size of Brazil easily is also a techno-fix. Is the promise that we're going to be able to do this, as, by the way, we abjectly fail to protect many existing forests from the pressures put on them by agriculture, really any less of a mirage than the idea that we'll create huge fleets of carbon capture and storage machines when we haven't done it yet? After all, Is it that much morally better if Shell is promoting a scenario with a slow phase out of fossil fuels, where we make up for it by planting forests the size of Brazil at the end of the century, or if they appeal to vast fleets of direct air capture machines to do it? I'm not coming down on either side of the argument, I'm simply saying that it can't be ignored. And another thing to consider about this is that actually, if Shell was saying that we had to do this with carbon capture and storage, rather than with afforestation, People might be looking to Shell and other fossil fuel companies to develop that carbon capture and storage. They might be saying, what are you doing to develop these technologies? What are you doing to ensure that this can take place? In the case of planting forests twice the size of Brazil, as their scenario now says, obviously that's not something Shell is going to be expected to do by itself. That is not something that Shell is going to be expected to take a huge part in. That might be something that is left to governments or blamed on governments for inaction with afforestation. And so it can be a way of shifting some of the pressures and some of the burden of decarbonisation. And of course, we all know what's going on here. We live in a society, apologies for the cliche, but we live in a society where we have allowed corporations to have their mandate as just being quarterly profits. And so the people who are involved in coming up with policy for Shell are thinking, what is going to maximize my profits in the next quarter, in the next quarter, 
over maybe a, a year's time horizon, five-year time horizon, 10-year time horizon, they're not thinking about what is going to maximize our possibility of decarbonizing society. They're not thinking about long-term sustainability and the likelihood of climate change. And the simple fact of it is that if they have a choice between a scenario where a lot of the heavy lifting of decarbonisation goes towards negative emissions and goes towards afforestation at the end of the century, and they don't have to do that much in the near term that contradicts their scenario, they'll lean to that over one which says we need to cut in half our production of fossil fuels over the next 10 years or something like that, because that would have obvious implications for Shell and its bottom line that it doesn't really want to confront. And, you know, people will say, Shell aren't really influencing these scientists, maybe they'll say that they're using perfectly legitimate models, they'll say that these studies are conducted um, in a peer-reviewed manner. All of this might be true, but all I would say to that is that even if you were convinced that there was no political leaning on Shell uh, scientists by Shell itself, you have to just remember that that line. There's a famous line that Noam Chomsky had where he was talking about manufacturing consent. And people, uh, journalists and so on, interviewed Chomsky and they said, you're claiming that um, all of my arguments are being handed to me by the government or by the establishment or some shadowy establishment who tells me what to say and tells me what to report on and tells me to report on things in a way that is uh, conducive to um, the you know, systems of US imperialism and foreign policy or whatever. And um, Chomsky says, no, I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that if you didn't have views that they found acceptable, you wouldn't be in the position that you're in. And I think you have to apply a similar principle to the idea that maybe the energy systems modelers who are being hired by Shell are probably the ones who are the most optimistic about the potential for long-term technologies and negative emissions, and the least determined to say that we need to slash emissions in the near term to get to where we want to go. Now, the wonderful Keetan Joshi, who I'm hoping we will have interviewed already even by the time this episode eventually comes out, wrote a piece on Shell's scenario specifically, and its dependence on these very optimistic levels of afforestation to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, instead of actually reducing their own production of fossil fuels. And he called it, you need to know about the Shell game. In it, he noted that Shell's new 1.5 degrees scenario, which poses as being more ambitious than their old 2 degrees scenario, actually isn't any more ambitious in terms of the near-term reduction in CO2 emissions than their old scenario, but pretty much just leans on more removals at the end of the century. In other words, this promise of more afforestation here is being used precisely as this sort of mitigation deterrence, and in creating these scenarios, Shell very much are attempting to set the boundaries of what we view as possible. He said, quote, The reasonable possibility of deploying tested, mature technologies like renewables, storage, batteries, EVs and heat pumps much faster than we think we can is dismissed as unreasonable. The ludicrous possibility of planting trees more than double the land area of Brazil, they badly overestimate even their wild assumptions in their scenarios, is presented not just as reasonable, but unavoidable. The whole piece is really, really good, but I wanted to talk about how uh, the shifting of the narrative happens with these scenarios and what's presented, and how, unfortunately, although planting trees might be a great thing, posing it as the only solution can help with that shifting of the narrative. So that's uh, You Need to Know About the Shell Game by Keetan Joshi if you want to read the whole piece. Another concern with negative emissions is the justice and equity question. 
shifting the burden of emissions reductions onto future generations. But this is just as true on relying on large-scale afforestation to come along and solve the problem in a few years than it is on relying on machines to be invented or other technologies to be invented that will solve the problem. And of course there are other justice and equity issues. Indeed, they're unavoidable. Because you're very likely to have a situation where emissions that come from the wealthy Western world, enjoying unrestricted access to things like air travel, we then rely on sucking those emissions out of the atmosphere by controlling huge swaths of land in the global south and using them for afforestation instead of whatever the people there might want to use them for. As scholar Olufemi Taiwo points out, in the worst case, this can end up just looking like another form of climate colonialism. And he has an article about that. Once again, we're faced with a rather questionable global situation where wealthy countries, who have become wealthy, let's remember, in part by destroying many of their forests and burning many fossil fuels, resulting in environmental damage that has disproportionately come onto the poor countries, now tell those same poor countries that not only can they not do the same thing, but they need to use their land to soak up emissions from the rich countries. The best you can say here is that some kind of financial transfers would need to take place to make up for this, but that's always politically controversial in itself. And some of these issues aren't actually present with carbon capture and direct air capture to the same extent, because you could do that within an individual country. Britain, for example, could build carbon capture plants uh, that would take place over our industry or over our remaining fossil fuel power plants, and we could bury things in the North Sea. We don't need to rely on forests being planted in Equatorial Guinea or wherever to make up for the emissions that we are currently uh, taking place, that are currently taking place due to British actions. In discussing previous negative emissions technologies, one of the other things we've talked about is things like technological readiness and whether the technologies evolved can scale up to sufficient amounts of carbon removal to achieve what they're supposed to in the models. You know, For things like carbon capture and storage, the fact that only a handful of projects at a megaton scale have been built when, you know, to make the kind of impact we'd lean on in models, you need thousands of those projects. That's held against them. We say carbon capture and storage won't work because there's only been a few pilot projects made and we haven't got anything like the uh, gigaton scale that we need and therefore it's not been demonstrated at scale. And I think that's a valid argument to make. But you could equally say that the fact that we're still engaging in massive deforestation across much of the world and that all of our pledges and promises to even just halt the deforestation have seen limited progress should demonstrate that the promises and pledges we might make about massive-scale net afforestation coming along to save us from climate change should be seen in an equally critical lens. How can we say that these solutions will scale just because we know that planting trees can be done when we've seen how difficult it's been to even prevent deforestation? I mean, I talked about the New York Declaration on Forests. Uh, That was made in 2014. In 2019, they had a five-year progress report And the subtitle of that progress report says it all. The subtitle of that report was A Story of Grand Ambitions and Limited Progress. So that tells you what they think is happening in terms of the grand ambitions that were being declared not that long ago by many of the same incumbents who are in power at the moment. There's an idea that because it's natural and many people don't see any technological barrier to the simple act of planting a tree, that it will be easier to do. But the barriers to lots of these technologies being deployed aren't necessarily primarily technological. It's not the case that carbon capture and storage doesn't work. It does work. It's been done. It's been done at a megaton scale. Um, Many of the direct air capture things do work. 
many of the enhanced weathering ideas do work. These things do work, in much the same way as we know that planting trees work. The barriers to lots of these technologies being deployed are not primarily technological, but they're financial, or they're to do with inertia in the systems that we have, or the people who'd need to get on board to make it happen instead. And of course, by leaning on negative emissions from afforestation and nature-based solutions, in a weird way you're sort of stealthily shifting the burden here, not just between nations, but also between sectors. It's possible to say that the fossil fuel industry should be responsible for developing carbon capture technologies. We could, if we wanted to, if there was enough collective political will to do it globally, we could mandate a law that said, okay, if you're going to extract and use fossil fuels, you have to bury the carbon that's associated with that, in the same way that we don't let other polluting industries get away with emitting their pollution for free. But could we say that Shell, if they're going to extract oil from the ground, would be forced to plant equivalent forests to make that carbon neutral as a fuel? What is Shell's motivation in assuming, as one scientist put it, the maximum possible nature-based negative emissions technologies will be available? Shell is not proposing to plant these millions of hectares of forests themselves. That will presumably be for the government to figure out how to do, and therefore the government will be indirectly subsidising the continued extraction and use of fossil fuels that Shell envisions as part of its scenario just as they have been subsidising, effectively, the continued extraction and use of fossil fuels for a very long time now. So again, are these promises, and the delays that they can result in, these promises of mass afforestation, really that different in the effect they have to promises that we'll invent our way out of it with techno-utopian technologies? In some ways, it might be easier to mandate that these fossil fuel providers do use technologies like CCS or negative emissions direct air capture to cancel out their emissions or compensate for their historical emissions, as opposed to assuming they can do so with land and nature-based solutions, which, after all, is harder to do in a particularly centralised way, and which would cross national boundaries too, much more easily. All of this is not to say that we should not pursue or seriously look at afforestation or nature-based solutions to deliver negative emissions which we may well need to have a hope of sticking within the Paris Agreement. But we have to be clear-eyed and realise that the problems which come with large-scale negative emissions don't necessarily disappear just because you're using trees to do them. And in fact, there are often other problems that you need to consider that may not be as bad in the case of using other technologies. And that's not to say that if you assessed everything in the round, you might not decide that nature-based solutions are still the way to go. But I, I, what I'm trying to do always in this series is... Think about some of the prior assumptions that people might have, or the prior assumptions that I had before I looked into these things, really, and try and correct those in as much as I possibly can, and get us to think about this in a really nuanced way, um, because it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be difficult to uh, work on these issues. But these are the sort of practical issues that you need to have in mind if you want to move beyond just shouting at people that we need to do X, Y, and Z, and actually consider, okay, how are we going to do that? So if it sounds like I'm going in on afforestation as a bad thing, it's not because I have that much personal bias about which of the negative emissions we should use, but because I think that most people coming into this probably have this intrinsic belief that planting large-scale forests is the way to go and is going to be easier than any of these technical solutions. And I want to hit against your intrinsic beliefs to get you to think about um, all of these things in terms of pros and cons. One additional concern with planting trees was pointed out quite a while ago in a paper by Lenten et al. 
they considered large-scale afforestation alongside other methods of, quote, geoengineering the climate. And they found that the actual temperatures and the impact on temperatures was highly dependent on the location of the forests. And so this is really a classic result that comes out of climate modelling. If you plant forests at high latitudes, they might actually reduce the albedo or reflectiveness of the Earth's surface, because you're changing bare ground or snow or ice that might be underneath to forests, which are uh, not snowy and not white and not reflective, and therefore are actually more absorbing of sunlight and uh, heat up these areas more to have a forest there than you would if you just had bare ground or snow or ice. And it turns out that this can be a larger effect, especially locally, than the indirect effect of the forest sequestering carbon. So planting forests, depending on where you do it, could indeed have a mild warming effect overall if done improperly. And that's just one of the subtleties that you have to take into account here, alongside all of the other stuff about how much carbon is actually stored in your forest. All of these things are very um, unclear and difficult to measure and subject to uh, uncertainties which render it not not impossible, of course, but more challenging to directly work out how much carbon you've taken out of the atmosphere by planting a forest. And more broadly, it's another example of how the impact of what you're displacing needs to be taken into account. Similar concerns have been raised around other aspects that large-scale tree planting may possibly have. Trees don't simply emit oxygen and absorb CO2 after all, but in some regions of the world they can emit methane, and they can also emit volatile organic compounds, VOCs, which are understudied byproducts of their metabolism, which may also influence the climate in ways we still need to study, although of course much less than greenhouse gases. Most scholars suggest that these effects are likely to diminish, rather than reverse, the potential of trees to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and result in net cooling, but it is another area of uncertainty you need to take into account particularly if you want to start really comparing these to other technologies as well, because there's not just a one-size-fits-all that planting a tree in one particular location is always going to have the same impact. The fact that planting trees is so popular in the public mind, though, at least in concept, means that it's one of the few climate policies that is rarely disputed. Even in America, even Donald Trump, one of the most anti-climate politics leaders of recent decades anywhere in the world, endorsed a Davos World Economic Forum-backed proposal to plant a trillion trees. Although, as ever, with this sort of promise, little actual action was taken towards achieving it. It just sounded nice to promise to plant a trillion trees, I guess. Environmental journalists at the time did point out the hypocrisy of doing this while other policies that he was enacting supported more deforestation in areas like Utah and Alaska at the same time. Now, you can argue about people's motives for proposing all kinds of climate solutions, but this Trump and Davos initiative really embodied the worst kind of this pledge. It was insincere, there was no real analysis made of how they could stop deforestation before afforestation was begun, very little actual funding was allocated, there was very little actual explanation as to how it could be delivered or could be feasible, and it was clearly designed to make people feel better about continuing with business as usual as if things were in hand and planting trees would solve all of the problems. So if you wanted a guide on what not to do for this sort of pledge, that would be it. And (laughs) for those of you who know about Davos and the World Economic Forum, is it really a surprise that they sort of just want to carry on with business as usual and maybe plant a few trees to feel better about ourselves? I think that's probably not a surprise to those of you who know about Davos and the World Economic Forum. This uh, somewhat delusional acceptance is unfortunately not just limited to politicians. 
I've talked before about a famous Crother et al. paper in Science which claimed that most of climate change could be reversed by planting billions of hectares of trees. The paper got this flashy launch in the prestigious journal, it was promoted widely in the media, and part of why it was so popular and so widely shared, I think, was that the message was one that people wanted to hear, a simple one, a loud one, global tree restoration is our most effective climate change solution to date. Who doesn't like trees, and who doesn't like thinking about the idea that we could plant our way out of this? But the paper, or at least some of its headline conclusions, was fundamentally flawed on a number of levels so basic even I could spot them, and it's not really my area, forestry. First, they forgot to take into account the fact that removing CO2 from the atmosphere alone doesn't reduce the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere by that amount. As we've described, there's a whole carbon cycle thing you have to worry about, which reacts to the changed concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, so you also have to remove extra CO2 that comes out from the land and the ocean sinks. When we release CO2, around half is absorbed by the land and ocean sinks, and half remains in the atmosphere. And it turns out that something similar occurs with negative emissions when we try and suck CO2 back in again. The land and ocean sinks respond and emit approximately the amount of CO2 that they have as well. So you sort of need to take out twice as much as you would think if you were imagining that you could take it out of the atmosphere with no additional reaction. I want to go into the flaws of this paper a little more, not to pick on the authors, but because they're illustrative of some of the other problems that can come when you're trying to estimate the potential for these nature-based solutions to really mitigate climate change. One advantage of carbon capture is that you do at least know how much CO2 you've pulled out of the atmosphere and buried, and you can estimate any additional emissions that occur as a result of building your machine and the infrastructure that surrounds that, to estimate the net negative impact of what you're doing. However, interfering with existing or creating new ecosystems as you might try to do by planting these megaforests is less clear, because estimates for the amount of CO2 that is involved, and that ends up being permanently sequestered, and how much of that happens as a result of your activity, it's all a lot more difficult to do. Now, this paper, the Crother paper when it came out, had a lot of uh, quite negative reactions from the scientific community, and this is quoting from a review of that paper in The Scientist magazine. Quote, Ludling, who is a critic of the paper, estimates that the estimate could be off by a factor of 10, maybe more. One issue that Ludling points out in a letter to science is the figures Crother's team used to convert hypothetical canopy cover of additional forests into a concrete carbon value. Such figures for specific forest types are hard to come by, so they resorted to using a single estimate of carbon storage, which Ludling suggests may originate from a tropical savanna, for a variety of different ecosystems, including mangrove and Mediterranean forests, and for potential forests in tundra regions, savannas, and montane grasslands. These are all distinct biomes in which trees grow differently, and therefore they likely build up different amounts of carbon, so it's difficult to say that this one-size-fits-all estimate is going to really work for all of them. While researchers do have to take some shortcuts in these global modelling studies where they're trying to estimate global technical potentials for something like afforestation, Oversimplifying the potential carbon storage of different forests in this way likely introduced many uncertainties into the team's predictions, according to Ludling. He says, quote, There are lots of places in this study where these numbers always end up on the higher end, resulting in inflated estimates. Duncanson, who has collaborated with some of the original study's co-authors in the past but wasn't involved with this project, says that such critiques are valid. The problem is that there simply aren't any good estimates on carbon storage for different forest types, so ultimately Crother's estimates cannot be verified or disproven. 
Noodling also takes issue with the map that Crowther's team ultimately produced that shows where additional trees could be grown globally to estimate for this global potential of afforestation. Many of these areas aren't available for tree regrowth because they're already in use. Those regions include land used for livestock grazing, as well as populated areas such as Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and rural settlements globally, inhabited by more than 2.5 billion people, Ludling writes in his letter. So some of this, this production of this map, uh, where they think they can plant trees in places where people are already living, may be due to poor land use data for these regions, he noted. So we see with these mega afforestation schemes that there are some not dissimilar problems to the idea of doing everything with bioenergy and CCS that we talked about before. You get these studies that estimate the global potential, and they come up with one big headline figure, which is the point of the study, but to get there they have to make these approximations, particularly in areas where data is sparse. And whenever you see these one headline figures, you always have to think, there's a lot of assumptions that went into this, some of them may be very uncertain, and that could mean this figure itself is very uncertain. We like certainty, and we like to quote these figures and say that we can get 10 billion tonnes of carbon out with afforestation, or we can plant a trillion trees, or whatever it may be. But, you know, it, it's there's always assumptions that go into these things, and some of them you have to go to the original paper to pick apart. And the number of people who actually do that versus the number of people who just read the headline is unfortunately not as many as we would like. So in this particular case, you've got a sort of machine learning algorithm approach where they have tried to make these approximations, particularly in these areas where the data is sparse, and that's not necessarily a terrible idea. Um, but it, the algorithm itself has to be questioned, and it decided that globally there was the potential for these billions of hectares of forest to suck gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. But it's much harder to know precisely how the trees would grow, how much carbon would be contained within the ecosystems, as opposed to what would be there without the forest, how stable the storage would be, how many trees could actually be planted, how free the land really was to begin with, and so on. In some cases for the carbon storage question, you'd be comparing a mature forest that's existed for centuries to a brand new one in a different location, with a different surrounding ecosystem and a different lifespan. Clearly there's some concern around extrapolating data for a few forest test sites into hypothetical new ones that are planted. Often the data that scientists have to use to make these estimates for how much carbon is really in an ecosystem is based on a very small number of sites that have been detailed, uh, scientifically surveyed. And you know, they'll do everything they possibly can to make sure these sites are representative and to try and figure out ways to fill the data gaps in better and better ways. You know, it's not easy to come up with carbon inventories for the natural world like this, but it does make the whole procedure more uncertain, unfortunately. And that means that at best, you'd have to look at this and say, once you've accounted for the factor of two error, it's an upper bound, and an upper bound that is quite uncertain that as the potential for this. So to say with confidence that tree planting alone could deal with a third of anthropogenic emissions, as Crowther says, I think is not really backed up by the facts. These are scientific concerns and uncertainties with a particular paper and precisely how much carbon you'll store with nature-based solutions. But I also think a lot of the negative reaction to the paper came from the idea that tree planting was the main thing to focus on, and the most effective solution to climate change. Ultimately, even if they are correct in saying that a global tree planting effort can store hundreds of gigatons of carbon, that's only a decade or two of our current emissions, which are around 10 gigatons of carbon at the moment every year. If we don't get off fossil fuels, all it's really doing is kicking the can down the road. If we keep emitting CO2, if we view tree planting as our main weapon to mitigate against climate change, as we're sort of being urged to do here, and we don't also reduce our emissions very rapidly, then we'll run out of land to plant forests on long before we run out of carbon and fossil fuels to burn. Because, after all, 
We're burning the accumulated product of many centuries of Earth's biospheres, which have been compressed and turned into fossil fuels over the years. And we're trying to replace that with one biosphere by growing extra trees there. In some ways, you have to apply a kind of corollary to Hornigold's law here. If you're doing negative emissions, then your activity has to be on a similar scale to the activity that produces our emissions to make a significant difference, to be a significant part of the solution. So the corollary is, don't expect the other impacts of trying to do this activity to be small or necessarily easy to predict either, whether that's social, political, environmental, etc. If you're trying to hack the climate back to how it used to be, or make up for a significant industry, if you're saying, for example, that we can keep the 10% of emissions from aviation, which will be hard to decarbonise, or, or steel production or cement production that will be hard to decarbonise, if you're saying that we can keep those emissions in place, uh, and maybe some backup gas terminals or something, whatever you want, and, and you're going to offset them with negative emissions, then you have to think about the scale of the industry that is producing those emissions, and your activity is going to have to be on a similar scale to negate those emissions again, and that will have all of the social, political, environmental consequences that, that establishing an activity on that scale has. Um, there's no real way to avoid those. Now, these uncertainties surrounding exactly how much carbon you might store are a problem when we try to get a handle on just how much negative emissions these nature-based solutions and afforestation can really supply. It probably won't surprise you to learn that the Shell scenario was criticised for not really taking this uncertainty into account, and instead being very, very optimistic about these nature-based solutions, both in terms of how much will be deployed, and also in terms of how effective they will be at sequestering carbon. But they also provide problems for the market mechanisms beloved of policymakers when it comes to comparing different negative emissions. Because in the world in which we live, all of these things are dreamed of of happening as part of a market that is based on a price on carbon. If you wanted to sell carbon credits based on planting a forest, or if a country has negative emissions targets based on planting a forest, then suddenly these differences in estimation for how much CO2 is being sucked in, these are no longer flaws in an academic paper, but they could be worth a staggering sum of money. You worry that there will be incentives for people to claim that they've done more than they actually have by saying that their forest has sequestered the maximum end of the uncertainty range for carbon. I mean, you can just see it, can't you? You can see the creative accountancy that might slip into this sort of thing unless we have some really rigorous standards going on here where people might say, oh yeah, according to our calculations, we've uh, cancelled out a billion tonnes of CO2 and then in actuality, uh, proper estimates for the impact of the activity show that it's not as good as that. Of course, there are other questions um, which come on to time horizons of the storage of carbon as well. Uh, planting forests will store CO2 for decades to centuries at the very most, while geological sequestration of the carbon could last for thousands of years. And of course, and especially as the climate itself changes, you have to worry about how secure these stores of carbon will be. Forest fires, forests die off, and so on, meaning that these stores of carbon can turn out to be pretty leaky. We'll talk about it more in the next episode, but one of the plans for uh, res restoration of natural ecosystems is to replant mangroves. Uh, mangroves are amazing, but attempts to replant them so far have not necessarily been all that successful. I believe there's a stat where um, there was planting campaigns that took place in the 90s, and perhaps 20% of the mangroves uh, that were planted have survived till today. So if what you're going to do is plant a seed and award yourself a carbon credit for the lifespan of this whole tree, and then as it transpires, the tree only ends up 
surviving, 20% of the trees survive the next 20 years, that's obviously not doing what you thought it would or projected it would. And the question of whether we can allow people to do that is an open one. But then, of course, if you're not going to give them the funding for planting the seed and getting the project underway in the first place, then there's not going to be a mechanism by which your market mechanism really works, if you see what I mean. So it's fraught with difficulty, and there aren't necessarily easy or one-size-fits-all solutions to this type of problem. New forests, for example, they tend to be a lot less robust than these long-term existing forests, because the forests that have existed for a long time are obviously in an ideal place for a forest, generally, and they also have a whole supporting ecosystem that may not necessarily be in place if you just plant a brand new forest. Quite often, when we plant new forests, we plant just one species. Um, These monoculture plantations are cheap and easy to do, and you can plant the tree that sequesters the most carbon according to your calculations and so on, which is why people like to do them. And obviously you can obtain all the seeds from the same place and all that kind of thing. Um, So large-scale afforestation programs often have these big monoculture plantations. But unfortunately, there are some issues with those. So a paper by Natalie Seddon et al., who's looked into a lot of these studies, uh, she suggests that 45% of the 350 million hectares that we're currently pledging will be reforested. Uh, Compare that, by the way, that 350 million to the 420 that's been lost since 1990. But the things that we're promising at least to reforest, 45% of that will be commercial monoculture plantations. But these unnatural forests of one type of tree don't support ecosystems and the environment in the same way. And in the longer term, they can be more vulnerable to disease, pests and other climate extremes. Then, of course, there are carbon accountancy issues if it's a commercial forest that you're planning to harvest again. If they end up being cut down again in 10 or 20 years and harvested, then obviously when you do that, you return that CO2 to the atmosphere in in some cases. And so it's a temporary store of a lot of that CO2 at best. But do you award yourself a carbon credit of five tonnes the moment you plant a tree that's destined to fall in a few years anyway? And do you say that that carbon credit is equivalent to if those same tonnes of CO2 had been sucked out of the atmosphere and liquidised and injected into a rock somewhere? I mean, again, it's just questions that standards are only starting to begin to deal with now um, that make all of this a lot more complicated. And, you know, when we talk about this being an industry on the scale of other industries, I'm not an expert um, in businesses and industries and so on. But imagine the aviation industry. Think about all of the different players there, all of the different laws that have had to be invented since the invention of the aeroplane, which have had to figure out how aeroplanes are allowed to work Uh, all of the different players that come into regulating things civil aviation authorities global treaties on how these things can work national laws bylaws manufacturing standards and regulations for how these things can be operated uh, different ways of planes communicate there's an endless litany of things that you have to have to establish a new industry to make sure that there's something of a level playing field, to make sure that everything functions as you intended to. And so if you're talking about setting up in the next 20, 30 years a negative emissions industry, which is going to be on the scale of existing industries, that's going to need all of this stuff to be developed too. And these are quite complicated scientific questions that we get into sometimes when we do that. So again, none of this is ever to say that you can't do these things, but I'm just bringing up what you have to think about when you want to do them. So on this note of old versus new forest, there was another paper too by Lewis et al. 
Forests that regenerate naturally have higher carbon sequestration rates, and older and more diverse forests also store more carbon, and they're more resilient to climate extremes and disease. So the things that we are going to replace these forests we're destroying with are going to be less effective at storing carbon, and less effective at storing carbon in the long term too, than the new than the old ones that we have destroyed. When you take into account the rotation times for a commercially managed forest, where you're cutting down the trees again and then planting them again and so on, and the greenhouse gas emissions from applying the fertilisers to the forests, Lewis et al. calculate that natural forest regeneration could end up storing 40 times more carbon than these commercial plantations, and 7 times more than agroforestry, where you have a combination of agriculture and forestry. This paper actually ends up concluding that you can't meet the Paris targets for climate stabilisation under the current reforestation plans that have so many of these commercial plantations, even with the use of BECs as well. So the type of reforestation is very important, and not all afforestation is alike. Unfortunately, the types of afforestation that you're most likely to get without rigorous standards or in these market-driven processes where the market isn't well regulated is more likely to be these monocultures that are done for commercial purposes rather than a proper sort of restoration of the ecosystem that existed there beforehand. Preferably, you want these forests that do resemble the ecosystem that was destroyed, which you then leave alone, and which don't end up being these harvestable commercial monocultures. But that's a different thing entirely, and then we start talking about the fungibility of forests, and it becomes very difficult. As usual in these episodes, then, you know, I'm saying if we imagine a world where carbon permits and negative emissions are a multi-billion dollar industry, you can see that there's a lot of questions we have to answer that we don't have to answer right now. If someone plants a tree, can they guarantee a particular amount of CO2 will definitively be stored over a certain time period by that tree? And if not, how do you compensate for that? As usual in these episodes, I've really front-loaded all of the caveats and the negative points to begin with, just to try and emphasise how much we have to get away with from simplistically thinking that planting trees is a panacea or a solution without drawbacks. And I've done it especially here, as I say, because I'm sure that we all have very positive opinions towards the idea of replanting forests, and I think we'd all agree it's something that we should do and should seek to do and should get uh, national governments and NGOs and so on involved with. Um, But because it's so popular, I think it's important to emphasise that it's not a solution without drawbacks or a silver bullet. But of course it is worth saying, in light of this, that there are likely to be a lot of advantages to afforestation and these more broad nature-based solutions which we'll talk about in the next episode as well. If you do them properly, preserving and gradually rewilding existing ecosystems rather than going for these big cheap monoculture plantations, there are going to be a lot of co-benefits to the environment, to the people who depend on the landscapes, which is everyone to some extent or another. Of course, new technologies don't necessarily need to be developed. To do this, you can plant trees fairly easily without needing some brand new technology that has to be invented or machines that have to be built. And you can do it at small and large scales. You don't need to build a huge CCS plant to make this start to work. Politically, it's extremely popular and it can help to reverse other kinds of environmental degradation as well as climate change. And generally, people expect afforestation as a way of removing CO2 to be quite a lot cheaper than other methods. Although, of course, you have to remember that these cost estimates, you know, the the numerator in terms of the cost, 
uh, is uncertain. And the denominator in terms of how much CO2 you're going to remove is also uncertain. So you can't necessarily take all of these for granted. And there's a real concern that you might end up selling a carbon credit for $5 a ton, which is based on some completely sketchy and unclear um, metric for afforestation. But there are some estimates that do say it would be as little as $5 a ton for afforestation compared to BEX, which would be upwards of $50 a ton and direct air capture, which could be hundreds of dollars a ton. So, you know, if it's the cheapest method that has all these co-benefits and you can do it sustainably and equitably and in a way that's good for the environment, then of course it makes sense to do it. And it's hard to say it would be a bad idea to engage in an awful lot of afforestation, particularly in places where it makes sense to do so. So you've heard me use this unfortunately rather jargony term nature-based solutions a little bit interchangeably with afforestation and without really defining it. In the next episode, we'll talk about the idea of nature-based solutions in more detail, which as the name suggests, aims to achieve a range of different things by taking a more holistic approach to restoring the natural ecosystems we've destroyed. And we'll talk about that in more detail. We'll have a specific case study on the mangroves that I mentioned today, because I think that again illustrates some of the issues and some of the concerns that can come out with trying to restore these ecosystems, as well as some of the advantages and benefits, which means it's such a tantalising prospect and something that we need a lot more research into and a lot more deployment of to actually develop our skills in doing this sort of thing. Until next time then, thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find a whole archive, all of the Climate 201 episodes, episodes on energy efficiency, on the solutions to climate change posed by Project Drawdown, on net zero pledges that have been made by various different companies, countries. You'll find our interviews with climate policy experts and climate scientists, all sorts of things you'll find there. You can find us on the web on Twitter as well, at PhysicsPod, and you can find the Science Podcast group on Facebook, that's another thing to plug. If you want to help support the show, if you like what we do, there's several different things that I would urge you to do at your next available opportunity. You can go to the website physicspodcast.com and find details of all of these. But there you'll find the contact form if you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you want to know about climate change, things you want to know about negative emissions, questions you'd like to ask me, please let me know. I try to answer all of the emails I get in a fairly reasonable time frame, and if your questions are good and interesting they can probably end up being episodes that i will produce or i'll answer them in listener mailbag episodes and more than anything else i really love getting email from you guys i appreciate that we are a small independent show we're covering content here that i don't think a lot of other people are necessarily covering so if you like what we do if you think it's valuable if you think it's important if you want to spread the word please tell as many other people who might be interested to the show to listen to it spread it out through your networks through social media uh, tell people who might be interested to give it a listen and plug it. I will be eternally grateful for that. If the person you're talking to doesn't like podcasts, uh, the scripts are now being published on Medium, medium medium.com slash physical attraction. You'll find all of the scripts there. So if you think that some of this stuff is even worth reading, then (laughs) you can send it to people that way. And of course, the other stuff you can do is financially supporting the show. We have a Patreon. If you sign up to the Patreon, you'll get bonus episodes, which you can't get anywhere else. You'll get episodes earlier than anyone else. So if you're listening to this, Uh, and sometime in the first half of 2021 probably then you are listening on patreon and thank you very very much for all of your support that you've given to the show so far i really appreciate it for everyone else if you sign up to the patreon who knows what will be up there by the time this episode comes out but i'm sure it'll be good and who knows maybe if you guys support me enough one day i will actually script these plugs at the end rather than just improvising every single time so that it's completely inconsistent lottery and i always forget something And it just sort of tails off into absolute madness. Until next time then, please do 
Take care.